Welcome everybody. Today we have Jared Tendler here. Jared is a mental game coach currently working for Team Liquid. He is an author, has worked for a numerous other professional sports. He also was an all-American golfer in college and we're going to talk about all some of that cool stuff today and uh, get to a lot of that. So welcome Jared. Hey, thanks man. Appreciate it man. Yeah, so my first question for you before we really even, and I guess this is part of the interview, but uh, what does that mean you're a mental coach? Yeah, I mean, basically, like my responsibility is trying to get uh, rid of the emotions that cause a lot of problems in, you know, esport athletes or poker players or day traders or golfers, um, as well as like develop strategies to learn faster and also get in the zone more consistently to focus better, to improve your decision making. Um, you know, a lot of the the, the places where I'm, I'm working, the people that I'm working with, you know, decision making is kind of like the muscle, you know, within the mind. Right. So, you know, an esports athlete, right, their decision making is, you know, kind of fundamentally almost like a psychological process. And so it kind of, you know, pigeonholes into the work that I do, because, you know, if your decision making is breaking down, much like a golfer's golf swing or, you know, an, an athlete's technique, you know, sometimes there are, you know, kind of mental processes that can be better understood to help improve that decision making aside from, you know, the tilt or the anxiety or sure. the confidence issues that are going to kind of impair that as well. Sure. So when did you first get involved in sports altogether? Did you play your whole life? I assume golf. I mean, you were a big golfer, right? I, I truthfully, I actually started in tennis. I mean, I started playing tennis, I think when I was like two or three years old, okay. uh, my parents were athletes and you know, so I just kind of grew up doing whatever I could, you know, baseball, uh, basketball, you know, playing backyard football and sports with friends and whatnot. Um, I, I kind of tended towards individual sports. So golf became another big one. Um, freshman year of high school, uh, I was 4'11 and, you know, making the transition from, you know, a little league baseball field to a big league, uh, sure. big field was, was just not going to happen uh, as much as I wanted to. And, um, you know, golf, tennis, and baseball were all spring sports. Sure. Um, tennis, I was actually ranked in the state of Connecticut as a junior. Um, not very high, but still ranked, you know, decent tennis player. But, you know, as, a, as a, but from a young age, though, I always had a dream to be a professional athlete and, you know, to compete at the highest level. So um, I kind of made a, made a calculation as a freshman. It was like, you know, golf seemed to be the best option. Um, I had, you know, I was, I was improving a lot at that point. Yeah. Um, height was definitely a legitimate issue, right? Michael Chang, back when I was, a kid and you know Andre Agassi were like the only two like successful tennis players like under six feet so yeah. you know that was kind of a low probability option um, and then I also had you know uh, my grandparents play golf uh, at a pretty high level and you know saw that they were playing into their 70s and 80s so you know it's kind of cool to think I, I could pick up this game that I could potentially play for a lifetime and you know ideally play for uh, play, play professionally. So you, did you get a scholarship to college? Did you go to, so you went to Skidmore College. Did you go to college to play golf or was that kind of a partial plan at least? Yeah. I mean, I, I was, I got good late, too late to get like a division one scholarship gotcha. and division three does not give out scholarships. Um, I think I could have transferred uh, my sophomore year um, and probably could have gotten one, but I was, at that point I was pretty happy. Um, and I also made the calculation to not like try to walk onto a program um, and wanted to also kind of head my bed a little bit and, you know, go to a school that I knew was going to kind of give me a good backup plan if, um, if golf wasn't going to work out, which, you know, turned out to be the case. Sure. <laughs> so you were an All-American golfer. What does that mean to be an All-American? So there are a couple of ways you could earn it. Um, you could either finish in the top 15 of the national championship um, or you could uh, have such a successful year that you get what's called an honorable mention, uh, which is what happened for me one of the two years. But 
two of the two of the three years um, that I was all American, I I finished. I think I finished ninth and and thirteenth um, in the Division Three national championship. Gotcha. Cool. So how does so you had to pick a major in college? You go into psychology, and how how why that interest? Did you just take a class? Did you know someone in the field? Like what prompted you to want to do that? I mean, I was actually a business major and ended up uh, having a dual major. Um, but uh, my sophomore junior year is when I started playing. Uh, actually, with freshman year of college, um, that summer, I tried qualifying for the U.S. Open. And the U.S. Open is, is, is pretty amazing because um, I think close to a half of the field, so 156 players, close to a half have to qualify, which means you know, you're playing in a qualifying event with some of the best golfers in the world. Sure. Um, and there are two stages to that qualifying. The first round is called local qualifying, and it's typically the scrubs who are you know, kind of the dreamers. Um, but it's 18 holes, and if you play well, like you basically advance to that sectional stage, and you could literally be playing almost like a like a like a a small PGA Tour event because of the number of PGA Tour players that are there. Sure. Um, so in that in that qualifier, my freshman year, 1997, um, I played the best golf of my life from tee to green, and completely choked on the greens. So for, you know, hit 13 fairways <laughs> out of 14, hit seven, uh, hit 16 out of 18 greens. Um, and made a bunch of birdies, but you know, I missed, you know, a bunch of putts from this length yeah. just because of the pressure. Um, so at that point it was like, that was really the first time that I, that, that ever, that had ever happened before. And so I didn't really think too much of it, but a friend of mine at, at, at the club that I played at, you know, uh, gave me the book, uh, by Bob Rotella called golf is not a game of perfect. Um, and that kind of just began my kind of education on the psychology of the game. I really never thought about the mental game prior to that. Um, and so, you know, kind of kept improving and, you know, getting better. But then by sophomore, junior year, like it just sort of kept happening that in big national events, um, I was choking. Now, I still won nine times in college. I mentioned, you know, kind of where I finished in nationals. But in those big events, I was kind of getting tripped up. And so I, I, at that point, I, I kind of realized like sports psychology, golf psychology had kind of taken me, at least in my opinion, as far as it could. And it was kind of, and I had taken both a psychology class in in, in high school, yeah. um, and then taken a survey class in college, and it kind of reasoned that a lot of sports psychology at this point um, was was kind of behavioral, um, you know, somewhat cognitive, but really it was like, okay, you're not confident, we're going to teach you to be confident, you know, you're feeling pressure, we're going to teach you this very rigid routine, and we're going to teach you to breathe and try to get you to relax. And to me, it was kind of like a like a ones and zeros kind of thing. It's like, you know, trying to just switch the the, the light switch off uh, or turn it on if you're trying to get yourself more confident. And it just seemed to be kind of too simple for me. And and I, I kind of dove a bit deeper into, into psychology and was thinking that, you know, uh, maybe like a therapist who's trained to get at the roots of issues and really solve problems at a deeper level, that, that maybe that's the angle I could take. And if I could combine you know, sort of the sports psychology, uh, the, the uh, counseling psychology side with the sports psychology side, then maybe I would solve my own issues. Um, and then, you know, backup plan uh, would be that I would, uh, you know, have a have a coaching career or a career where kind of working with athletes, sure. uh, specifically golfers. So you decided this, you, you kind of got into that when you were an undergrad. And then why did you get a master's? You need one in psych, right? That's like a thing you, you have to have? Yeah, it's, yeah I mean, it's kind of like... Okay, I mean, there's some funny things with psychology, right? So, um, it's all about names, right? I can, I mean, you actually, you right now could could hang a shingle outside your door and say that you are a psychotherapist. Okay, it is legal to do that. Gotcha. 
But like like the legal profession, right? I can't just go around saying I'm a lawyer, right? Sure. I need to pass the bar. And so, you know, to be a credentialed, you know, therapist or, or, or counseling psychologist, um, actually not even a psychologist, be a, a therapist, uh, you need to have a master's degree. You need subsequently two years, uh, at least in, in Massachusetts, where I got my my degree and my license, I needed 3,200 hours of supervised practice to then, and then pass a test to get licensed. Um, to be a psychologist, you need a PhD, right? There's a lot of people in esports calling themselves a sports psychologist or an esports psychologist. And, and if they don't have a PhD, they're, they're breaking the law, at least in the US, gotcha. or not the law, but the ethics. So um, yeah, it, it, was a, it was a kind of a, a decision I made truly my senior year of, high, of, of college um, I added the psychology degree um, and then went to Northeastern for my master's. Awesome. So you're there, you, you take an internship while you're there, and then eventually you get into this, you, you come up with this idea of golf play, which I assume you were, you had thought of before when you were an undergrad, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, there were, you know, to me, like everybody in golf had always talked about how much of a mental game it was. And yet nobody was sort of willing to kind of put their money where their mouth was. And I was like, well, maybe, maybe, you know, at a golf course, there should be, you know, a golf, uh, you know, mental coach or a golf psychologist, sure. like at every course, like it just makes sense. If you're going to take lessons, why would you not work on, on the psychological side? So, you know, I wanted to kind of bring, uh, you know, a bit more of a deeper, but yet still kind of logical and analytical approach to uh, golf psychology and, yeah, that, that was kind of the, the, the calculation I made. And so, I think so, the, so yeah. how do you how do you connect? I mean, you obviously had connections being an All-American in golf, playing golf. You had played probably with other PGA players and new people. So how did you convince them that this is something I'm going to start up? How do you how do you get them? How do you go from I have this cool idea, <laughs> I'm getting my master's degree to actually getting PGA and other golfers to try it out and and make a business out of it? Uh, overconfidence is helpful. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, so as, after I got my license, you know, in Massachusetts, it was July, uh, 2005. Um, I, I quit my job and, um, basically flew out to Arizona, I, you know, I essentially knew nobody, um, had a couple, you know, kind of friends of friends of friends that, you know, kind of got me started. Um, you know, I got there, made some connections and just started building. It was just like a, you know, banging on, door, on doorsteps. Um, eventually, I was able to kind of find a home at a golf course called Moon Valley, uh, which had, you know, a pretty deep connections to a, a club manufacturer named Ping. And because of that, there were a lot of tour pros that kind of would roll through there. Um, I, I, I got hooked up with a with a, a golf instructor who had kind of been looking for somebody like me um, to kind of plug into his model, which included both, you know, obviously the swing instruction, but also kind of the physical component you know, and this is still kind of early, like Tiger, when he came, came on, on the scene, you know, he really did kind of take like the physical development to another level and people started working out more. And, you know, sure. back in the day, like they thought like lifting weights was just a waste. And, yeah. It wasn't going to uh, help him be a better golfer. Yeah. It was going to, yeah, exactly. And, and he kind of changed that, but he also kind of changed the game in terms of, of the psychology. People saw kind of how mentally strong he was. Um, and so I think because of that, there, there were just sort of more, more eyeballs and more, more of a desire for that. And so, getting hooked up with, uh, with this instructor, um, you know, basically kind of gave me a home base and I just started, you know, trying to convince people and, you know, picked up, uh, what, one of my clients who at that point was 10 years old, uh, when he and I first started working together is now on what's called the corn Ferry tour. And he's basically kind of knocking on the door of, of, uh, making on the PGA tour. Um, 
but but truly, you know, other than other than him, I really had a lot of difficulty convincing both the like experienced amateurs and you know the semi professionals. I I didn't really get too many of the opportunities to work with PGA Tour players at that point, but I was I was working with some you know guys that were aspiring. Um, but I was young, and it was just like I, I got in large measure. I, it was hard to convince them to do the work that was necessary to kind of get them over the hump. Sure. Um, and and ironically, it was sort of serendipitously through meeting another uh, through some mutual friends on the golf course that I met a professional poker player. Um, and this was sort of the the, the beginnings of um, the online poker boom. And yeah, there was just sort of this whole wide open market and you know, just started working with poker players. and <laughs> So you start working with poker players, and I want to talk about what exactly you do, but I'm going to wait till we get to the esports part to talk okay. about that. But, uh, you know, so you start working with poker players, and you actually start working with some pool and other sports. So how do you, like, how do you, I guess, how do you, you meet a poker player? And how does that lead to you writing, you literally wrote two books, you've worked with 500 poker players, like tons of them. How do you get that? How do you, how do you build that? Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I think there, there's a combination of just like drive and hard work and de- just the dedication to like figure out a way. I never had like my the 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 vision that I had that was clean for me was professional golf, and when that kind of you know stopped, like the like what does my career look like long term just never felt like it was sequential. I didn't have like that clear roadmap. I just wanted to be successful. I knew I had it in me to be that way, and so yeah, I, I just felt like you know kind of golf was sort of dying off. It was just hard. And here was this huge opportunity where I could just kind of reinvent myself in a sense. Um, and there was nobody else doing it, right? There was wide open marketplace. I could kind of drive it. And, and so, uh, you know, basically that one guy um, was fortunately in a very kind of prominent spot within the online poker world. Gotcha. Uh, he had a, he had a, a pretty, pretty large following uh, with his blog. Um, he was making these instructional videos on a website called Stocks Poker. And, and these online training sites had just begun popping up like nine months prior. It was like kind of crazy timing. Um, and so what he was struggling with at that point was, was massive tilt. Okay. So this is a guy who had incredible drive as well, wanted to be a professional book, a professional golfer troop uh, too. And, and just insane work ethic. He's playing 400 hours a month. Um, wow. he's, he's playing at this point um, between 12 and 16 tables at one time effectively playing a thousand hands an hour and he's making a dollar a hand. So, so the biggest thing for him was, well, I'm getting so pissed off that I'm literally like punching my monitor. I'm breaking my, <laughs> my desktop. I'm slamming my mouse. Sure. And I just can't get the hours in. So, you know, he wanted help for me to, to stop him from tilting. And he's a pretty logical guy. My system melded with his pretty well within four months. He goes from making ten to twenty thousand dollars a month to making eighty to one hundred and twenty thousand dollars a month, and and like the results were just like so ridiculous that you know it was like a no brainer for this online training site to say like hey do you want to make some videos for us? And at first I was like scared out of my mind because I know I mean yeah okay I played poker as a kid you know, <laughs> sure you know, like, AC Ducey and you know it's like stupid stuff like that for nickels and quarters but like. You know, these guys are pros because they're making like thousands and thousands, not millions of dollars a year. Like, what can I tell them? So, it, like, I literally spent, like, maybe not literally, but it was probably, it was around four to 600 hours developing these four videos that were probably 
a sum total of, um, you know, four and a half hours long. And, and the reason it took me so long is because I had to figure out like how to communicate. I didn't know poker well enough to be able to, and I knew this was an audience who you can't really bullshit. Uh, they're yeah. super skeptical. So rather than like kind of going down that route, and I even said this in the videos, I, I basically said, all right, I'm going to train you to think like I do so that you can figure out how to solve your own issues. And I'm just going to train you on my system. But in order to do that, I needed to even know what my system was. And so what it forced me to do was like kind of take what I had kind of developed intuitively and, and create this, this sort of external system. And it was like a remarkable process. And it was like, I mean, I'm, I'm so thankful that I had that opportunity to do and spend those four to 500 hours um, doing that because it got me to innovate. Um, I created some theories that I, that I think are, are, are unique in their kind of formulation. Mm -hmm. um, and, and they're really kind of pretty helpful in terms of creating a foundation for, you know, improvement from a mental and emotional standpoint. And so uh, is that what you wrote your book on that your, your system for poker, you wrote two poker books. Is that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, the correct yeah so basically the the poker book includes you know kind of the foundational system um you know in the first uh, or to, you know uh, chapters two to four being kind of the emotion learning and and this sort of strategy um and then you basically kind of take those three chapters as the system and you implement it into the next four chapters which are tilt fear motivation and confidence and so that if you're going to sort of figure out how to solve your own issues um, you need to kind of use the system both to understand, you know, how it's showing up for you. What are the signals that you are even tilted? I, I had a client who he didn't know that he was tilted until he lost 10 buy-ins, which for him was $10,000, yeah. right? So until that point, he didn't even know he was upset, right? <laughs> and so it's, it's, it's a remarkable thing, but we, we oftentimes think of like awareness or recognition as being something that's just like automatic, mm -hmm. but really it's a skill. And if you can develop that skill, then you have a chance of actually solving, you know, your issues. I know we're kind of getting into the, the meat of it, but, you know, so, so yeah, the, the, the system is sort of what's expressed in the, in the poker books. Uh, the second book um, is more, basically the first book is all about like getting rid of the crap, yeah. you know, those issues. And then the second book is, all right, well, now that that stuff is gone, let's see how good you can actually become. And so it's sort of focused on getting in the zone more often, improving your decision-making, learning faster, improving your focus, having better discipline and, and better motivation. Now, see, everything you're saying to me as someone in the esports field, I 100% I see how this is valuable. But did you, were you, how do, how, how do you get into video games? Did you, were you, did you play games at all? No, no. I and mean, that's, this is the funny thing. So, so I, I never, I didn't, I didn't play poker. And then because of poker, now you have all these traders, these day traders, um, finance types who play poker and they find out about the book. And then, you know, I started working with some institutional investors and, um, you know, institutional firms and some, data, you know, yeah. in, in individuals. Um, and then in 2016, um, Victor Goosens, who used to be roommates with a professional poker player who I know very well from the poker world, um, just kind of contacted me out of the blue and, you know, asked if I was interested. And, you know, we had we had had some conversations and had kind of like an understanding that you know, there was some potential here, but again, I, I didn't play poker, you know, I invested in stocks, but I'm not a trader. You know, I played Mario brothers and, you know, legend of Zelda and <laughs> sure. you know, um, agent USA back in my Commodore 64 as a kid, but you know, never uh, to this level. Um, and so uh, I, I was interested. And so this was just prior to ESL New York. 
the Counter-Strike event um, in 2016. And so I go and, um, you know, just to check it out. <laughs> I mean, and, you know, to say my mind was blown, it was blown as much as it was when I first kind of got into the poker world. It's like, who are these people? What the hell is going on here? But, uh, you know, I've, I, still, I still show this picture of, um, you know, at least a thousand people waiting in line to get autographs from these freaking kids. I'm like, what, what, the, like, what is going on? I mean, they're all, I mean, they're kids. It was like, yeah, it was like, yeah, they're like nine, they're like 18, 19 year old yeah. kids. Like, and, and I'm, I'm like, so that was sort of the, the, the before, you know, then they're going to go play. And, and, you know, this was like kind of the prelims. It wasn't like this at, at the stage yet. So we're in like the locker room at the Barclay center. And, you know, there's these computers set up and, you know, I'm just like sitting in a corner, like watching these guys talk and play. And then there's this coach. Um, and it, it was like, it was just remarkable. I mean, of course, I did. I had been involved in sports all my life, so you know, thinking about it from a sporting from a sporting side, it was yeah, it was massively exciting because I saw how how much inefficiency and how much there was wrong with what I was seeing. So um, yeah, that was that was kind of the beginning. I sent I sent like a report back to Victor of like kind of what I saw and my recommendations, and you know, I think we we got started like a week later. So, and for those of you that don't know, Team Liquid that he's talking about is the the largest and most successful, pretty much the largest or most successful professional esports organization out there. So, if you're not familiar with it, they are the, the they're the big dogs. They are it. I mean, they're they're number one. So, okay, so you're you're there. You you get connected with Team Liquid. So, what exactly are you going to do with them? What do you do? I mean, it's the same. Thing. I feel like in some ways it was like the same thing with poker, right? It's like okay, now I have a whole different group of people who have some familiarity with sports psychology, but largely don't. Um, they're not paying me, right? Obviously, the organization is the one that's hired sure. me. You know, these kids, like these kids really, like, what, like, who am I coming in and telling them what to do, right? <laughs> um, and, and so there's sort of like kind of varying degrees of openness. And then there's also a big learning curve for me to like uh, kind of understand the game and the games well enough for me to know how to help them. And so you know, my, my kind of main priority when I came in was to work with the League of Legends team, okay. the Dota team, and, and the Counter-Strike team. Um, and so, you know, I go out to LA and meet with the League of Legends team and, you know, um, draw up a, a vision of how we're going to win the world championship and, you know, have no idea how, how ludicrous that, that is to a team <laughs> that, you know, is basically going to, like, fight to avoid getting relegated in, you know, the, the pre- um, franchising phase of, of the league championship series and uh, so you know but you know i started establishing relationships with the players and the coaches and uh you know with steve um aaron said out there and um you know managers and you know just kind of figuring out it was just again just kind of throwing myself you know deep into the into the, the rabbit hole here and trying to figure it out and um yeah i mean it's it definitely has taken me a couple of years to really feel like i have kind of command of the the environment's command of, sure. of understanding of the game well enough for me to to know how to help and you know i mean i think fortunately i've got a, a great organization behind me i mean not only are they the biggest and the most successful but um they're just truly just great people i mean i think that's you know oftentimes the mark of a great organization so um yeah it's been a great collaboration and you know we're off and running so you walk in, so let's just say you, you, you know, not necessarily your first experience working with an esports team, but you're, you're working with Team Liquid still. So do you, do you work with the players individually? Is this like a practice thing? Are you there when they're actually playing like in their big thing, like in their ear at all? 
Yeah, all of the above, right? So, um, yeah, obviously it depends on which game, right? So okay. if we're talking Counter-Strike, you know, there's uh, actually, well, I guess all three games technically have, um, you know, in, in big championships, we'll play multiple maps or multiple uh, multiple games. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm there uh, working with the players individually in terms of preparation. I'm working, working with the coaching staff to develop, you know, kind of the infrastructure for how to get the players to develop, how to manage issues, how to resolve conflict, how to improve communication and teamwork. Um, you know, both in game and out of game, right? I mean, handling criticism is a massive issue for, you know, people in general, let alone, you know, kind of a bunch of young men. Sure. Most of whom are, you know, being coached by people who are just a couple of years older than them. So, and, and, you know, don't have a lot of, you know, coaching experience, right? So, I think one of the diff- one of the main differences we often see with with esports compared to uh, team sports is that you get somebody who's in, who's, you know, 20 to 24 years old. You know, they have been in systems before where they've been coached sure. and had coaching for quite a long yeah. time. So even if you are a coach at that point, you've got some experience. You know, a lot of times you've just been, you know, kind of work playing, you know, yourself. Then you get plucked into a team and then from a team you become a coach. So it's there, there's a lot of training. So there's been a lot of opportunity to really kind of work with, you know, kind of all levels of, of them. Um, so, yeah. So for me, there's a lot of like kind of boot camp time where we're working individually, working as a team, working, you know, with the coaching staff. Then there's you know, kind of the pre-game, um, you know, work that I, I may do. There's the, you know, uh, between maps uh, game type stuff. And then there's, you know, either the celebration afterwards or the, you know, help them pick, up, pick themselves off the floor. Uh, What's an example of something you'll do for them? Like in-game, like something, a, a situation. Do you have any examples of something that happened or something like just Yeah, I mean, I, I, can give you, I can give you a great example. So um, uh, DreamHack Dallas, uh, this was last year with the Counter-Strike team. Um, at this point, um, you know, we are number two in the world, uh, where we've climbed, we've been the sort of the perpetual chokers in these final events. Um, now from my perspective, we've, you know, choking is, 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 um, you know, a, a kind of a, a scary term. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in my mind, like we were choking for different reasons in different finals, right? So we kept kind of falling forward. We kept learning and improving, but observe, you know, from the outside, it was like, oh, these guys are just chokers. So we're trying to get over the hump here. Um, and, and in the first map, I forget. So we, we either had won the first, first map or we lost it, but either way, after the one that we lost, um, you could tell that there was tension, right? And so that we, we, you know, you walk outside, you know, there's the five guys, there's a coach manager, myself, and we have maybe 10 minutes total before they've got to get back on stage and yeah. like go play the next one. So like recovery is like massive here. And most of that time you want to be spent focused on that next map, right? Um, you know, you, in Counter-Strike, you don't know all three maps that you're going to play or all five maps that you're going to play uh, before the, the vetoing begins. Sure. So, you know, you kind of prepare and you, you, you know, you create game plans, but you know, once you kind of get started, right, that's where you're going to really make a lot of the adjustments. So they ideally need those 10 minutes just to focus on getting ready for the next one. And so the first 10 seconds in that circle is just dead silence, right? And you can tell that everybody's kind of steaming inside. So I'm the one who breaks the silence and just gets people to start talking. And I kind of, you know, basically just facilitate that conversation. Um, and so we spend, you know, one to two minutes just kind of venting and bitching and getting all out. And, and then that's it. And, and then they go on, they're able to reset. They go back and, and win, you know, again, either that, either that next map or the next two. Um, and we win, you know, kind of our first big tournament that then kind of kicks off um, uh, a successive three, uh, 
uh, tournament win that gets us uh, the Intel Grand Slam, which was a massive accomplishment that people in the esports, uh, in the Counter-Strike scene, A, didn't think was going to be accomplished, uh, but it had been accomplished by Astralis, who was our nemesis the year prior. Um, but we also accomplished it in 60 days. So it was an incredible feat, um, you know, a million dollar uh, kind of bonus prize on top of it. And, and you know, I'm not saying it was me that sort of jump-started, but, you know, that's one spot where, you know, having some kind of intervention from a psychological standpoint, you know, can kind of make, make the difference. Sure, a bunch of a bunch of pieces came together and all, yeah. everything was in sync and propelled that win. I mean, everyone has their, you know, their little, their, their part in that. Um, so... One of the largest things we deal with in games is is toxicity. Is that one of the large things you you deal with? Because a lot of players come into esports, and sometimes there are toxic players, and, and that's something that's happening not just in esports but in video games. Do you see like a large market there? I mean, I know we're dealing with it in K to twelve, higher ed, and really everywhere. And there's not a lot of good info out there about how to deal with this stuff. Yeah, I mean, I I think to a lesser degree, I'm I'm dealing with it. I mean, I'm certainly aware of it, right? The guys talk all the time about yeah. how you know, solo queues and pubbing is, is just so toxic. Um, so there are instances where I'm kind of coaching them to better just how to handle that environment. Um, you know, and obviously, you know, we're oftentimes dealing with, um, you know, conflicts amongst players. And I, I kind of tend to use or tend to not use the word toxicity or the phrase toxicity kind of within that. Um, they do. I, mean, I think it's just like, like a kind of a vernacular of it. But, you know, really what you're mostly talking about is just like this anger. Yeah. Right. It's just how much how much are you able to restrain, you know, these, these are, are competitive environments. And, and you know, there is research that just sort of shows that when you remove like the social interaction, that people are much more likely to just, you know, spit out what they're thinking. Yeah. Um, whether without any kind of filter, whereas when you're in a social environment, that's that's oftentimes curved a lot more. But for some people, that's not the case when they're working within a team, because you know, they see a player who maybe is not working as hard or isn't quite, you know, is making repetitive mistakes. They can't quite understand why that's occurring. Um, or they just have this this will and drive to win that just like gets them so single minded that they can't sort of understand that team environment is really a, an important thing. You have to have trust with your teammates in order for, for communication to work. Right. I mean, you don't listen to somebody that you don't trust, that you don't right, really respect. Sure. You don't learn from somebody like that. So how are you going to sort of create that within, you know, a team environment if we're going to try to actually like win championships and be, you know, a great team, possibly, you know, the best team in the world. So, you know, uh, some advice on how to deal with toxicity, I think for, you know, most people listening to this, number one, if you're the one that's receiving it, try to use it and understand where your weaknesses lie. So one of my kind of fundamental rules when it comes to communication, and this is something that I've, I've got, you know, my communication rules that I send to all my players within Team Liquid. One of those rules is, if you take feedback personally, it means that you have a personal issue, okay? Because if I were to tell you that, you know, you are uh, like a yellow monkey from the planet Bleeblop, I mean, you, you're just, it, like, it's a nonsensical thing. It doesn't, sure. it doesn't hurt you, right? You know, but if I call you a idiot, you know, maybe that hurts. Well, why does it hurt? It's, it doesn't hurt because you are one. It hurts because maybe you believe that it's true. It hurts because maybe you're unsure of where your competency lies. Uh, it hurts maybe because, you know, there's been some bullying or there's been some weak, you know, and so there's there's a wound there, right? It's like I've got a, a, a bruise on my shoulder, right? If I, if I touch my shoulder here where there's no bruise, it doesn't hurt. 
if you touch right there and you stick your finger into it, it freaking hurts. So when you understand that the toxicity that comes at you is not inherently causing you pain, okay? It's only exposing a wound that already exists. Now, that's a little tough when we're dealing with 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 kids, right? We're dealing with sure. teenagers, we're dealing with young adults, right? Where, yeah, it does hurt because you're still in a place where you are developing a sense of yourself. You're developing a sense of your own competence. You're developing a sense of your own identity. So you have to be the one that stands up and internally defines who you are, how you want to be. And you've got to almost like kind of create a mantra for yourself and have some strength there. Um, you know, I actually worked with a, with a cousin of mine who, um, you know, she was a little overweight, you know, was getting kind of the negative comments. And, and we really kind of worked together to just like talk about like, you know, how beautiful she is inside, what she believes about herself. And she held on to those ideas and was able to transform her relationship with that toxicity. It just didn't hit her the same way because she became the one that was defending herself against it. Yeah. And, you know, when you're in an environment like that, that kind of strength is no different than physical strength, right? If you're going to defend against a lot of pressure that is coming at you, what are you going to stand up and, and kind of fight back with it, right? If sure. You need some strength. And a lot of times strength mentally means it, it's like the degree uh, to which you, you're holding on to an idea. Yeah. That That's what defines that strength. Yeah, it's it's a big issue in in the K to twelve and higher ed arena that I'm in is just how to handle it and everything. So it was awesome, a great explanation. Um, I'm gonna clip that out and show it to send that piece to my students because I think it was awesome. good. So are the other professional teams now? Do they have mental coaches? Are you seeing it across do, the yeah. board pretty much? Yeah, yeah, it's it's, it's definitely becoming much more ubiquitous. Um, you know, I think there's there's a, at this point still kind of a wide variety of you know degrees of experience and and you know degrees of of um, uh, actually degrees that they have, right? So, um, uh, you know, uh, but yeah, I think for the most part, the, or, the organizations that are, you know, kind of capitalized well enough to be able to afford, you know, either full-time or, or, or kind of contracted help are, are, are doing it because they, they just see the value. And, you know, just like every other, you know, major sports franchise, whether it be basketball, hockey. So they you know, all have this too, I assume, like foot professional they, football. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So they all have this. So what, what are... If someone wants to get into this field, what are the qualifications they need to get into this role that you have? I mean, technically, it's whatever gets you hired, right? Sure. <laughs> I mean, in my mind, and I get that. Like, so I probably get two to three emails uh, a month uh, at, at a minimum, um, you know, asking me sort of, you know, what my experience has been like. And I you know what would. So I, I'm going to be kind of very uh, kind of heavy handed in terms of my advice here. Because I've seen a lot of people who think that a bachelor's degree in sports psychology is enough. And I think it's enough to be decent. I think it's enough to get you started. But, you know, when you get a master's degree, there's a ton of training that is involved, especially, you know, if you select one that, you know, it requires a lot of those internships yeah. and those educational opportunities. Getting a master's degree is, I think, a, a necessity. Now, you don't have to get a master's degree in counseling psychology. In my opinion, I think it's a better route to go because you develop a skill set that you wouldn't develop from the traditional sports psychology. Yeah. And it's in my opinion that, you know, the sports psychology stuff is easier to learn, right? It is, uh, in large measure, more stuff that you can read books from and, and then just kind of have some, you know, uh, shattering or mentoring experiences where you just kind of go and learn and see how those mental skills trainings and, uh, you know, environment buildings are, are actually being deployed. 
um, you know, being able to solve problems at a deeper level is, is a harder thing to have. And so like, you know, my, the range of options with which I have to deploy when I'm working with a team or working with a player is just bigger. And so I think for that reason, I'm able to be more effective because when we get, you know, the, the instances where you've got a player who is probably never going to go see a therapist, but has issues that need to be dealt with on a deeper level, like I can be there to, to support them in that way. And, you know, in some cases, it actually allowed us to continue to win championships, right? You know, we've had issues um, on Team Liquid before, and, you know, one was fairly well documented in, um, you know, in, in some of their videos a couple of years ago with this player in Angola. And, and, you know, I mean, I have the utmost, utmost respect for how open he was, you know, with some of those issues. And so, you know, we, we did like a lot of patchwork in, in kind of the first split of uh, spring in 2018. We're still able to win. We go to MSI, which is the midseason uh, invitational, and and he kind of has like a, a bit of a breakdown. So you know all that patchwork kind of kind of got broken, and so he and I kind of took a step back, and and he was willing to dig deep, and you know we made some pretty pretty significant changes, and you know come the summer it was it was a different different person. So yeah. you know I, I strongly recommend um, getting trained and getting educated. It's yeah. just it's very easy I think for some people to think. Oh, well, you know, I know for myself what works for me, right? But it's so different when you take your knowledge and have to apply it to a wide variety of people, be able to have a relationship, you know, build a relationship with them and be effective. And so when you have like a really strong foundation that is education, that is training, you know, your career is, is you know, going to have a lot more upside in the long term. So, yeah, you got to invest more time in the short term, um, you know, but I've been building my career for 15 years, sure. you know, and I was not you know, as skilled as, as I was, um, you know, 12, 15 years ago, as I said, you know, overconfidence certainly served me well yeah. early in my career, but you know. Yeah. And I think a lot of people feel like they're just going to jump in and be where you are at 15 years. It, it doesn't work like that. It took you 15 years of experience. So when you're, you're now, you know, taking on interns, hiring people, what, what are those check boxes? Is it a master's degree, some experience, or are those the kind of things you are looking for that, that yeah, gets that yeah. from resume to interview? Yeah. yeah, minimums for me. I, I I will not hire somebody that has a bachelor's degree yeah. because it's just not worth my time. Yeah, gotcha. I want somebody that's got you know that kind of competency. Um, you know, but then a lot of it is is competitive too. Like the same kinds of qualities that we want to see in the athletes themselves, I want to see in in that person sure. too. Somebody who's highly motivated, dedicated to learn, willing to go the extra mile. Um, you know, you got to be friendly. You got to be relatable. Um, you know, I think it's it's a challenge, right? I mean, I think you know my skill set, my talent, so to speak, is, you know, kind of like the talent of the players, right? You, you have to have a wide dimension to what you're, what you're able to do because you've got to be relating with the players. You've got to be relating with the coaches. You've got to be talking to management and, you know, kind of managing lots of different situations if you want to be really effective. No, and, and you, you yourself have to be able to sustain under high pressure situations. You know, so another checkbox too is like, how well do you understand your own issues, right? How well do you understand your own experience to be able to draw from that? I mean, I think, you know, the moment I was describing earlier with the Counter-Strike team, it's like, that's a high pressure moment, right? If I choke there, you know, maybe we fail. Maybe I get lucky and the team was able to figure out and all the work we did before was enough. But, you know, I needed to step up. And if, if you know, I wasn't able to have my own issues handled, you know, then the choking issues from, you know, when I was a golfer would have, would have uh, you know, kind of continued to afflict me. So, yeah, so I mean, those are a lot of the check boxes that we're looking for. How important do you think your past in golf, not not necessarily that you were an All-American and at like pretty much the highest level, but 
how important do you think it was that you've exposed yourself to those high pressure situations to be able to deal with it, to translate it into understanding what the players in any sport or field are going through? Yeah, I mean, you, you kind of said it all there. It's, it's, it's massive. I mean, I think, you know, to really put yourself in their shoes and understand what's going on. If you've never been in, you know, highly competitive environments, you know, playing for national championships, um, trying to win tournaments, um, it's hard to really understand what it's like. If your life has been too easy in a sense, like, you know, I mean, every, we've all taken tests before. We've all in school and been under, sure, you know, kind of varying degrees of pressure. Stuff. Yeah, exactly. It's all stuff. But, you know, but the question is, like, how well can you conceptualize that and be able to translate it? Um, I think it's important to have some competitive experience to be able to, to draw on. It doesn't have to be athletic. Um, you know, it could be uh, performance, right? I mean, my wife sure. is, um, you know, was uh, was on stage and was acting, you know, so she had to go through, um, you know, callbacks and rehearsals and all, you know. So, and, I, and, I, and the other part, too, is like just understanding the practice and the training environment, right? Sometimes school is not really a great representation, right? Because the standard is sort of set and you just have to meet it. But the thing about competition is like, you never really know where that line is. Yeah. It's always rising and rising. So what are the practice and training environments really look like? If you don't have any experience in that regard, um, you know, your ability to kind of translate your, you know, sort of psychological mental framework for, um, you know, helping players is just going to be limited. Yeah. So, so what's next for you? Are you staying, staying in esports? Are you, is, is that the field you see expanding for yourself? I mean, what's, what's your five-year plan? Yeah, I mean, truthfully, like I, you know, so I wrote the poker books. Um, I'm, you know, pretty close to finishing a trading book, mm -hmm. you know, 10 years after I wrote the first book. So it's going to be kind of a pretty big kind of upgrade in a sense. Yeah. You know, the system has become more systematized and everything is kind of, you know, kind of lined up. And, and for me, it's kind of at a, at, a, at a level of maturity, I think, that I can kind of take it and and deploy it. So, sure. so yeah, I think, um, you know, trading and, and, and um, you know, esports will be kind of, I think, the next kind of verticals in a sense that, you know, I'm going to really kind of um, drive as much as I've driven uh, in poker before. Uh, I'm not going to go. I'm not going to go to golf quite yet. I think um, there's a lot of material in golf, and I really need to, you know, be be very well well prepared to enter that market again. Yeah. Uh, but you know, I um, I still have you know I, golf is is still my first love, and I've got you know two guys in the PGA Tour that I work with, and you know I mentioned uh, the one guy in the Corn Ferry when I got another one. Um, so it's exciting for me to be kind of working with the individuals in golf. Um, you know, beyond that, um, I do have a mass market book idea that, you know, I think will kind of be in the pipeline also. Um, cause I think a lot of, you know, it, it's, if it's not obvious, right. Like these concepts apply in, in any industry, right? Sure. It doesn't matter. Just performance Absolutely. is performance, human is human. So I think it'd be cool to be able to bring some of these ideas to a, a more mainstream audience and, you know, like kind of pick your vertical of performance, whether it's in music, whether it's, you know, trial lawyers, salespeople, uh, you know, you name it. I think, you know, professorships, right? No, anything. Kind of I mean, so. as as I was creating the questions for this interview, I was thinking, wow, how, how much, how applicable is this to, I have three children in elementary school who are in sports, who are in Cub Scouts, to yeah, every yeah. one of those activities, teaching them these lessons at that age will propel them to grow into adults already doing it. And just totally. how important that would be. So yeah, I mean, I, I totally see the application. And, and and as a parent on the outside, when you know if you're not in check with your own stuff, right, can can sure. you know have expectations sure. you know, and see how much toxicity exists within parents on the sidelines of some of these. Oh these yeah, sports. yeah. So, <laughs> so it can be like the the mental game of parenting a child playing sports. Yes, could be could be, could be a vertical. Yes. Yeah.
all right, Jared, it was awesome. Good, good uh, conversation. Thanks. Thanks for coming. Yeah, thanks. Jared. It was awesome. Appreciate it.